I was the first person in my family to discover and use email. And I thought it was awesome. I was excited. And like you do when you're excited, I immediately tried to figure out how to share that excitement uh, with my family and with my parents in particular. But it was obvious to me that they could not they weren't understanding what I, was, what I was saying to them. Oh, yeah, okay, electronic mail. So I tried to figure out, okay, how can I, how can I get them to understand what's happening here? Uh, and I, I discovered at church one Sunday uh, that missionary friends of theirs in the Philippines had an email address. And I thought, okay, here we go. So I, I brought that little card home. I, I told my dad, I, I sat him down, I said, hey, we're, we're going we're gonna to write a note to your friends in the Philippines. And he was like, okay, okay, I'll humor you. Uh, and so we, we typed out a note, we sent it, you know, we went up, we ate dinner or something, and later that night, I, I went back to the computer, I checked our email, we had a response. Run upstairs, I get my dad, I said, dad, dad, you gotta come down, we got a response from your friends in the Philippines. And he just starts laughing at me, he's like, we don't have a, they're in the Philippines, there's no way they've even received that message yet, let alone responded to it. And I was like, you just got it. You got to come down and see. So he comes down. I pull it up. And he was just dumbstruck. He said, this is unbelievable. And, it, and in his defense, I mean, this is at a time when if you mailed a letter there, you know, like 50-50 odds it would ever find its way to the person you were trying to send it to. The idea that he could write them and they would respond within hours was unbelievable. Uh, we, and we both sat there, I remember looking at each other, both thinking, like, this is going to change the world. This is amazing. Luke, who writes uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, uh, he writes those books because he believes he has witnessed an event that is going to change the world. He writes those books because he believes the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is the turning point in human history. And so... If you notice, Acts 1 actually begins with the same event that ends the Gospel of Luke, and that is with Jesus' ascension and enthronement. Acts opens with the message that there's a new king in town, and he takes his seat upon the throne, and King Jesus tells his disciples that they are now to be his messengers, his apostolos. That is, they are to spread the word that he is king. He tells them they will bear witness to this truth first in Jerusalem, later throughout all Judea and Samaria, and eventually even to the ends of the earth. Now, just a quick aside here. Even as he's telling them this, the disciples respond asking about, you know, is this when the kingdom of Israel will be restored? Because they're still thinking in terms of just one nation, one country. But already Jesus is pointing them in a global direction. Uh, yes, Jesus is the king of Israel, but he's king of all creation as well. Now, if you're a new king, one of the first things you need to do is obviously to inform your subjects. That's why Jesus has commissioned messengers. But in the days before TV and social media, you've got a problem. Uh, in the days before voting, it's an even bigger problem, which is you need to somehow convince the people that you are the legitimate authority. I mean, how are they to know? Uh, they didn't see you making campaign speeches. Well, the answer is, you usually have to bring the message with some symbols of power. If you're Rome, when you have a new emperor, you don't just send a messenger off by, your, by themselves. Uh, you send the messenger with the symbol of Roman power, which is the Roman legions. 
So this is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2. We see Jesus telling the, the apostles, you'll be my messengers, but don't leave just yet. Wait until you receive power from on high. Sure enough, as Pastor Joel covered last week in Acts 2, Jesus keeps his promise. And he sends the Holy Spirit who will imbue his followers with power. And also, from that moment on, the Holy Spirit himself will be at work in the world making sure the will of the king is done. What that means is, I think, that when we get to Acts chapter 2, the second half, the stage is now set. We have Jesus enthroned as king of all creation, uh, and we have Jesus' royal messengers commissioned to spread the word about the new king and filled with Holy Spirit power so that those who hear the message will be able to see that it's true. In other words, the messengers are now ready to go and spread the word. And so, throughout the the rest of the book of Acts, that's exactly what they do. They start in Jerusalem, and then the message spreads to Judea and Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. That is essentially the outline for what follows in the rest of the book. Uh, And and that's what we see in the second half of chapter 2, all the way through chapter 7, starting with Peter's sermon. The gospel spreads all throughout Jerusalem like wildfire, aided by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it spreads so successfully that by chapter 8, it prompts a backlash from the Jewish authorities who persecute these new believers, causing them to flee Jerusalem. But even here, Luke tells us, the Holy Spirit is at work because guess what? When those believers flee Jerusalem out into all Judea and Samaria, they take the message about Jesus with them. And so we get to the next level of the message spreading. That brings us to our passage today in chapter 8, or chapter 9, sorry, with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. All right, that was quite the introduction, so I'm glad you made it this far. All right, before we get to his conversion, I think we need just a little bit of background. We need to remind ourselves who Saul of Tarsus was. Uh, And the simplest answer is that he was a zealous Jew who saw Jesus and his followers as as dangerous heretics and a threat to the Jewish faith. And so, Paul becomes an active, violent opponent and persecutor of those who believe Jesus to be their Messiah. Look real quickly, if you would, at how chapter 9 begins. Luke says this, he says, But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, uh, that is Christians, men or women, he might have authority to bring them bound to Jerusalem. The point here is that Saul is not content simply to see his faith threatened and undermined by this new message. And so he has sought out the proper authority to arrest the people who are spreading that message. And by the way, just in case you think uh, the reference to murder is a rhetorical flourish, it's not. Turn back one chapter, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now here what we find out uh, is that one chapter earlier, uh, Stephen was executed because he had given his allegiance to Jesus. And what we learn in chapter 8 is that Saul was there watching and approving. It says this, it says, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the the great persecution that sends the message about Jesus to Judea and Samaria. And what we find out is that Saul is one of the principal leaders of that persecution. In other words, at this point, in the early days of the Jesus movement, Saul appears to be one of the largest and most dangerous obstacles to the spreading of the gospel and the building of Jesus' kingdom. Uh, If you think about it in in practical political terms, what we would say is that, that Saul is the first big test for the new king, Jesus. And the question is going to be, as we go forward, how will Jesus deal with this dangerous opponent who denies his lordship and threatens his rule? Listen, we know what Rome would do. Rome would crucify him. We know what Herod would do, throw him in prison at least. The question is, does Jesus have the power to deal with this dangerous opponent? Well, let's look. Look with me now at verses 3 through 9. I hear Saul, armed with authority to arrest followers of Jesus, sets out for Damascus. And it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, having heard the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So what's happened here? Well, the answer is that the king came in person to confront his opponent. Jesus appeared personally to Saul. Actually, I think it's a very similar experience to what Stephen has two chapters earlier. Stephen, right before he is executed, uh, is there amongst enemies when all of a sudden Jesus uh, gives him a glimpse into the heavenly throne room. He, He pulls back the curtain, as it were, so that Stephen can see that Jesus is, in fact, in the throne room of heaven, seated at the right hand of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for Stephen, this is a powerful encouragement. It confirms for him that what he has believed, what he has staked his life on, is the truth. That what he is bearing witness to is the truth. Jesus is the Lord. Paul, well, Saul still, on the way to Damascus, has a similar experience. As he's traveling, once again, Jesus gives him a glimpse into the heavenly throne room. He pulls back the curtain. But for Paul, it's a very different experience. Where for Stephen, it was an encouragement for Paul or Saul, it results uh, in fear and in confusion. Paul does not even know who's addressing him. He has to ask, who, who are you, Lord? And he gets what I imagine uh, is a deeply unsettling response for him. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I had a great story here illustrating how hard it is to be wrong about uh, a time recently when my wife was ba- badly wrong. 
Okay, good. I didn't know if you'd know that was a joke. It's a joke. I would never, I would never do that. And I don't have any stories about her being wrong anyway. So, um, I, I did, though. I came across a study recently that I thought was super interesting about 9-11. Uh, the day after 9-11, a bunch of researchers into human memory realized they had a tremendous opportunity. And so they, they worked together and they developed a standardized form, just a questionnaire, about 9-11. Just basic things. Uh, where were you when you heard about it? Uh, how did you hear about it? And did you tell anyone about it? Who did you, who did you contact to, to spread the news? Uh, and they had people fill this out the day after, 9-12, and then a year after, five years after, and ten years after. And they suspected when they did this that an event like this would just etch itself into people's memories, uh, that it would exist until the end of their life like a, like a snapshot preserved in time. What they found out was the opposite, that as time went on, those memories changed dramatically in, the, in most people. Uh, in fact, they'd get five years on, uh, and they'd, they'd have someone who the day afterward told them, I found out at work, I talked to my coworkers, and I went home early. I, I didn't even think to call anyone. And that same person five years later would say, I found out at home and I immediately called my parents. And, and, and the researchers, what they did is they slid this, this questionnaire that they had filled out the day afterward back to them, writ, filled out in their own handwriting. They said, is that your handwriting? Uh, yeah, it is my handwriting. Well, well why, why is it that you know, there you said you, you were at work and you didn't talk to anyone, and, and now you think you're at home and you called your parents. And a, and a staggering number of people looked at what they wrote that first day and looked at the researcher and said, I don't know why I would have written this. None of this is true. Well, of course it is, right? Uh, what the researchers learned were two valuable things. One, uh, they confirmed that our memories are a lot less reliable than we think they are. And second, they learned that it is very hard for us to admit when we are wrong, even when we're confronted with overwhelming evidence of the fact. It's hard to imagine how Saul must have felt on the road to Damascus, confronted so directly and so clearly by his own error. I mean, he wasn't like persuaded of this. He literally got a glimpse into the throne room and saw, yes, in fact, Jesus is Lord of creation. I mean, that would be hard enough. Hard enough to discover that you've been so badly wrong. But imagine finding out that you were wrong and that you ruined lives because of it. Now, don't get me wrong. What Jesus does for Paul is a great mercy. But it's what C.S. Lewis would have called a severe mercy. And like mercy often does, this mercy will change Paul's life. It will transform him. In fact, this change, prompted by Jesus' mercy, driven home by the power of the Holy Spirit, is so complete that when Paul looks back at this moment later in his own life, the only way he can think to describe it is as a rebirth into a new life. But we're not quite there yet. When we left the story, uh, Saul's encounter with Jesus had left him blinded and no doubt uh, confused as well as helpless. Uh, he has to be led into the city by the hand by his fellow travelers. Uh, and so he gets led into the city, and once he's there, there's little he can do but obey Jesus. And what Jesus has told him is, sit tight, I'll tell you what to do. And so Saul does. Now uh, that brings us to verses 10 through 19. 
It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, into the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in to lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. I want to note two things here. First, I think it's worth noting that Ananias is just a regular guy, a normal believer living in Damascus. And he is understandably concerned when the Lord tells him to go and see Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Saul is a dangerous adversary, and he knows it. And yet, after his concerns are noted, Ananias obeys. And so it is through the obedience and the prayers of Ananias that Saul is healed and officially gives his allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Ananias prays, and Saul's sight is restored, and he is baptized into the faith. And as Luke hints here in the later verses, Saul will go on to an extensive and powerful ministry, but it started right here with the simple obedience of Ananias. Second, do you notice what Jesus said about Paul when Ananias objects? He says, he is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. If you remember where we are in the book of Acts, the gospel, as Jesus has instructed, has spread throughout Jerusalem and throughout all Judea and Samaria. Uh, now it's time for it to go global. And Jesus says, I've chosen Paul to be the one to get that started. And what we learn is that what the king wants, the king gets. Look at verse 20. Immediately after Saul is healed, he begins proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. Verse 22, but Saul increased in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I find that incredible. It's hard for me to admit when I'm wrong. Saul immediately does an about-face embraces all the shame and embarrassment that brings with it and says, none of that matters. What matters is that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah and the Lord. Within days. I said at the beginning of the story that the key question here is, does Jesus have the power to overcome this obstacle to his kingdom? Uh, this man who threatens his rule. Again, we know what Rome would have done. We know what uh, Herod would have done. But the answer in Jesus' case is yes and yes. And in fact, Jesus will go one better than those others. You see, Jesus 
didn't execute Paul. He didn't throw him in prison. He redeems Paul. He transforms him with the kind of power that only Jesus and his kingdom possesses. Saul was not defeated. He was co-opted. From now on, this brilliant, active, relentless opponent of Jesus becomes a brilliant, active, relentless ambassador for the gospel. In a matter of days, Saul went from Jesus' greatest opponent to his greatest ambassador. That's the kind of power that Jesus has. I know this has covered a lot of ground, uh, but one of my goals this week and the next few weeks as we continue with Acts is I want to give you an idea of the practical, historical, uh, on-the-ground impact of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, Sometimes I worry that we think the impact of that was largely personal and spiritual. And while certainly it had a tremendous uh, spiritual and personal impact, it also changed the, the reality on the ground for regular people right away. Right away. And I think we get a sense for that momentum Uh, for the sense of the world changing as we read the book of Acts. Jesus set in motion a fresh, creative act of God. And what I think is awesome is that you can draw a straight line from Saul's conversion that we just read about to our church. I mean, what are we? We We are a gathering of Gentiles from the end of the earth who proclaim Jesus as Lord. You want to know how that happened? It starts with Jesus choosing Paul to take his, his message to the Gentiles. I think that's pretty cool. But as I close this morning, I do want to offer just two insights specifically from this passage that I think are important. First, Saul's conversion is a powerful reminder that no one, no one is beyond God's redeeming reach Listen, I'm convinced that part of the point of the background we get on Saul is there specifically to drive that home. Because nobody, nobody but Jesus looked at Saul and saw an instrument for building the kingdom. Everybody else looked at Saul and saw a danger and an adversary, but not Jesus. God chose Saul. He reached out and he put his finger on Saul's life. And he said, from now on, you will work for me. And from then on, he did. Listen, we we don't know exactly why God chose Paul. There's a lot of possible reasons. Uh, He was zealous. He knew the Torah inside and out. And and he, he had a remarkable genius for persuasion, for writing letters. It could have been any of those things or all of those things. But I have to imagine that at least part of the point was simply to prove that he could. To prove that no one, no matter how far away from Jesus, is ever beyond the reach of God. I also suspect that when I say that this morning, that a lot of you have a name or a face that pops into your mind. Someone you've been talking to for years, maybe decades, praying for, and someone who still seems far away. The message to you this morning is don't give up. Remember Saul. And remember that no one is ever beyond God's redeeming reach. A second thing that struck me this time through the passage is that most of us are not called to be Paul. Some are, but not most. 
But God still needs Ananias and Barnabas too. Listen, I know it's tempting uh, when we read through the book of Acts uh, to either hope or maybe to worry that we are all supposed to be like Peter or like Paul. But scripture never says that. Uh, Some will be called to that kind of life in ministry, but most will not. But here's the thing. That doesn't let any of the rest of us off the hook, not even a little bit. God puts a call on all of our lives, and we will never know how God will end up using us. Uh, Consider Ananias. Uh, He was neither the dangerous opponent of the gospel nor a firebrand apostle. He was, so far as we can see, someone who lived a quiet, faithful life. But when God called on him to step up, to step out in faith, even when the cost could have been very high for him, he does it. God chose to work through Ananias to heal Saul and to baptize him. And so the great, uh, powerful ministry of the Apostle Paul begins with the simple obedience of Ananias. Or consider Barnabas. I ran out of time to get to this, but you should read it this week. That's your homework. Uh, In the verses right after what we read this morning, uh, Saul returns to Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, he's excited, he's, he's seen the truth, and he wants to meet with the other apostles, but they're terrified. They refuse to meet with them. They're convinced that this is just all a ploy on Saul's point, part to find out who they are and to arrest them. And so they say, thanks, but no thanks. We're not meeting with this guy. All of them refuse to meet with Saul, except Barnabas. Barnabas takes the risk, the risk of being thrown in prison or being killed. And he listens to Saul. He hears his testimony. And then he goes out on a limb and he presents Saul to the other apostles. A small thing? Yeah, maybe. But a great risk. And in the hands of God, every obedience, no matter how small, can lead to something great. As in fact, this one does. As we'll see in the coming weeks, it's through Saul's admission to the group of apostles that God reveals his plan to welcome all of the Gentiles into his family on equal footing with the Jews. Uh, the uh, summer after my freshman year at Bethel, uh, I worked at the camp that I had, I had grown up attending. It was called Camp Burton. And it was a great experience. I mean, I had loved going there as a camper, and it was really a joy uh, to be on the other side of that, uh, serving in a ministry that had given so much to me. But I have to admit that uh, about halfway through the junior high week, I was starting to get a little bit worn down. And the reason is that I had the girl crazy cabin, okay? And if you've ever worked at a camp with kids that age, you know there is always one cabin you know, on the spectrum that's just way further out there, way more boy crazy, way more girl crazy. And that was my cabin that week. I mean, everything we did, if we're doing an activity, we're, we've got to show off for the girls. If we're going to chapel or to a meal, we've got to figure out how we can sit next to the girls we've got to sit next to. Uh, and, and, if, and at night, you know, they're laying awake, whispering about, you know, sneaking out to meet with girls. And about halfway through the week, I'm just, I'm just not sure I can take too much more of this. And, and, and I'm trying to lead the Bible study that I've spent all this time writing for them. And as I'm talking, I can hear them whispering. Teens are great at this. They think, like, you can't hear them, you know. They're, I can hear them whispering about girls while I'm trying to lead the Bible study. 
And, and I just as it's happening, part of me is like, Lord, I think this week might be a lost cause. And then all of a sudden, I just felt powerfully convicted. And it was like God said to me, hold on. Did, did we forget that that was you not too many years ago? And it was like he said, stop rolling your eyes and just talk to them. And I thought, okay. And so I, I just put aside all the materials I'd spent all this time preparing. And I said, okay, guys, listen. Look, look, look. I get it. I w- I'm just like you. I grew up in the church. I went to church because my parents drove me there. I prayed before meals because my parents made me. And I went to camp because my parents paid for it. I said, and that's fine when you're children. I said, but you're not children anymore. I said, look, you have got to decide, are you or are you not going to follow Jesus? And you have to answer that question. Your mom can't answer it for you. Your dad can't answer it for you. You have to answer it. And if Jesus is your Lord, maybe maybe you should start living like it. And even while I'm saying it, I'm thinking, "Ah, this could make for a really awkward rest of the week. I don't know if this is a good idea. But you know what? It seemed to go pretty well, and it seemed like we actually connected there. I didn't think too much about it, actually. Uh, The week wrapped up. Things went better. And then the, the next week, I got three cards from three different parents, only cards I got from parents the whole summer. And they all said some version of the same thing, which was, I don't know what happened at camp last week, and I don't know what you said to our son, but he came home a different person. Our son came home and said, I know I've been a Christian, but I decided for me that I'm following Jesus. What a gift. Thank you. And here's the thing. I knew while I was reading that that I said nothing to them that their parents, their youth pastor, their youth leaders had not said to them a dozen times. It was nothing to do with me, nothing to do with what I said. Just for God, for his own reasons, chose that week to take those words and to to do something in their lives. And so he did it. Most of us are not going to be called to be like Saul or Peter. But what I want you to see this morning is that he doesn't need us to be. He needs us to be the people he called us to be in the place where he has put us, to live Christ-centered lives in the places where Christ has sent us. He will most likely, for most of us, call us to live faithful, obedient lives, to work hard at our jobs, to love our families and our neighbors, and to bear witness to the truth about Jesus whenever we can. And once in a while, once in a while, God is going to call on you to step up and to step out in faith, possibly at great risk or great cost to yourself. He may call you to give generously to someone that you find out has a need. He may call you to offer radical forgiveness to someone who has hurt you deeply. He may call you to extend welcome and hospitality to others, to those that others refuse to welcome. So what I want to tell you this morning is be ready. Be ready. Because like Barnabas, like Ananias, we never know how God might use that little obedience to do something great for his kingdom.
Will you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks because, Lord, we acknowledge that you have given us your Holy Spirit as proof that you are, in fact, Lord, as a fulfillment of your promise, that you have, you have not just commissioned us to bring your message, you have filled us with power so that we can do that effectively. God, I pray that you would help us to trust in you and to trust in your plan. Help us to live faithfully in the places where you have put us and help us to be ready when like Barnabas or like Ananias, you put your finger on us. And God, we pray that you would be at work building your kingdom by the power of your Holy Spirit and through this congregation in the workplaces, in schools, in homes, in neighborhoods where you have sent us. May your kingdom grow as the word about Jesus spreads. In your name we pray. Amen.